When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is episode 177, Is No Code the Future? I'm Matt, and actually, Mike isn't here this week. He's uh, still traveling back from visiting family over the holidays. So in this solo episode, I'm going to be dissecting no code, low code, and coding, and what their status is in the industry. So if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on Patreon, leave a review or rating on your podcast app, join us in our Discord server, share this with your friends, and... The whole thing about no code, right? It's weird. It's a little bit of a controversy. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people only use it. Some people refuse to touch it. There's always been a bit of a controversy in the development community over what is better, no code or code. And while this controversy may never be truly over, the numbers do really speak for themselves. No code and low code solutions are here to stay and are likely going to take over more coding applications than we could have imagined just a few short years ago. So I have some hard numbers for you now. This is from a Forbes article that I found and the Forbes article quoted a bunch of other sources. So I've quoted some of the original sources. All the links that I found will be in the show notes so you can go and check out all the different articles because they're good reads. Okay, here we go. First one, quote, Forrester analysts estimate 75% of all enterprise software will be built with low code technology this year, end quote. And that's from Inside Big Data. Now, that's interesting. 75% of all enterprise software will be built with low code technology this year. Now, It says with, not completely from, but this is something that's interesting, right? We're kind of reaching a point in which a lot of people have grown up with technology all their lives. And so if you're an employee and you're tech savvy, you can probably, without even really realizing it, use a low-code solution in your enterprise software. So an example would be an accounting department. If the accounting department needed some sort of new report because some new tax law came out, whatever, yada, yada you might just be able to go into your enterprise accounting software and use a low code, a low code little editor and make yourself a new report without even really realizing it. A lot of this stuff is becoming sort of second nature to people. And you're not really going to realize like, Hey, wait a second. I'm actually kind of doing what I doing, what I used to have to go to a developer for. So that's probably where this sort of figure comes from. I would estimate another quote here. By 2030, the global low-code development platform market is expected to produce 187 billion, billion, not million, billion with a B in revenue. And this is from Forbes. This is super interesting. I know I just said that it's been a controversy between I like code, I don't like code, I like no code, I like low code, yada, yada. Clear the room, clear the air there. When there's money on the table, people are going to try to get it. People are going to try to go for it, and it sounds like there is money on the table here. Obviously, there's a bunch of low-code and no-code solutions out there that are already charging people 
charging people money in a SaaS model or maybe perpetual license, whatever. There's so many out there. But the whole thing is, is if this figure is correct, 187 billion in revenue by 2030, that's huge. And so it's something to consider if you yourself are like, hmm, what app should I make? Maybe kind of set the controversy aside if you are a person that's thinking, I'm a developer, I'm not going to touch no code. And maybe you should code a no code tool. That might be something for you. But next quote here. By 2024, low code application development will be responsible for more than 65% of application development activity. And this is sourced from AI Multiple, which is via Gartner, hence the, <laughs> hence the, the list and the, the web of different sources that I found for the same, uh, for the same quotes here. But low code application development will be responsible for more than 65% of application development activity by 2024. Think about that. That's kind of why I made the comment where I don't think we would have imagined this a couple of years ago. I think we all kind of figured, oh, it, you know, it's no code and it's low code. Basically what it is, is it's for people that don't want to learn, don't want to learn how to code and they're making their own little small business website or they're making their own app for something specific and they don't want to go to a developer because app development is expensive. If this number is true, that is a huge amount of the market activity being in a low code development. Now, whether or not whether or not this actually happens remains to be seen. Obviously, this is an estimate. But if I were to throw my own estimate at this, I would say that we kind of have to take a look at the definition actually of low code. So I would call something like Stripe or something like it, like another service like it, I would call that a low code solution because effectively you can make your own custom website, use Stripe to process the payments, and you can use their APIs and all their tools and yada yada to sort of make it. I would consider that sort of a low code solution because you can kind of code around it. However, you can also use Stripe in a different context that makes it no code. So an example would be you have WordPress. You install WordPress, then you install something like WooCommerce, and then you install a plugin into WooCommerce that allows you to use Stripe. Someone who does that hasn't touched the code at all, and now they have Stripe payments working without touching the code at all. So the definitions of low code and no code, and hence probably why even no and low code were separated <laughs> um, in the first place, but the, the difference between no and low code is that definition is going to be probably changed over the years. It's probably going to be wiggled a little bit. And so it, come, it kind of comes down to the question of if I'm in a very complex settings menu, am I at a low code stage or am I at just setting the settings stage? Like where's the line? And I don't think the line's going to be very obvious. However, even if we were to lower this estimate to 45%, which is 20% lower than what the estimate is, that's almost half. And that's, that's pretty big. Like that's pretty big news. And so, you know, whether that's good, whether that's bad, you know, it remains to be seen. And we'll dive into that later on in the episode here. And the last quote I have here, almost 60% of all custom apps are now developed outside of the IT department. The majority of these users, which is 40%, work in a professional setting. So what I would kind of equate this to is, let's say, let's use the accounting example again. New tax law comes out. I'm using some sort of accounting software, some sort of enterprise grade one. And I a new tax law happens and I'm like, whoa, I can't do this. I have to call up the IT department. They have a developer, you know, sort of sub department that can help me make a new reporting plugin for this enterprise application. We're kind of at a point now where going in and actually sort of, quote unquote, using a low code solution will actually 
kind of solve that for you without you really realizing it. And I think that you won't even necessarily call the IT department. You might just go to the tech savvy accountant on your on your team and say, hey, can you please make this new report? And they'll be able to do it just by going in and setting a bunch of settings or going into some sort of visual programming menu or some sort of sort of visual programming menu I'm imagining is sort of like a flow chart. One of those things you've probably seen, like a flow chart of, of of uh, different commands and such, which most people won't even realize is coding. There, I think we're getting to a point, not that I've seen it, but I just have this feeling having been in the industry at this point where we're probably at the part where people are going to be able to use those visual coding programs with very little uh, actual development experience. And so you're going to have, you're going to have these, uh, these little tickets, these little work orders, if you will, no longer show up or very rarely show up in the queue of the IT department because it's just quicker to go to your own team and say, hey, can you please make this while we continue crunching the numbers in this in this accounting example? And of course, custom apps apply apply to way more, <laughs> way, way more than just the actual uh, accounting department. There's, you know, tons of stuff. You could be at a technical department, yada, yada. But the point of the point of the, the matter remains, like, I do believe that the IT department is probably going to get less, what would you say, I guess, routine coding tickets, and you'll get big ones like, hey, uh, this entire, uh, you know, way we calculate profit needs to be changed and sort of like a root core or like complex change is probably what's going to show up in the uh, the ticket queue. Now, if we step away from all the hard numbers for a minute and we say, Let's take a look at a sample size of one, and that sample size of one is namely Webflow. Uh, this is a no-code platform that we use or I use quite often for our clients. Uh, it is clear from our experience that it makes the website creation procedure much easier to get into for people that do not want to learn all the ins and outs of web development. And this opens the door ultimately for full-on freelancing businesses run by people that are, in most cases, designers first and developers second, which is actually kind of reflected quite a bit in Webflow's uh, marketing schemes. So they might not even be developers at all, really, actually, just as a little tidbit there. Designers first and like hardly a developer or not, not developing at all, they might just learn all the Webflow controls. Now, I will say this, though, and this is why it kind of got muddy at the end there, and, and that is that I would actually call Webflow, and this is just, again, personal experience, I would call Webflow more low-code solution because you... Having HTML and CSS knowledge is a massive asset when using Webflow. And generally, if you know HTML and CSS, you probably know the basics of JS as well. It's usually kind of just thrown in together. And so if you're at that point in your learning where you've learned HTML, you learn CSS, I think it's going to be rare. And again, this is my personal opinion. I don't have numbers to support this. I think it's going to be rare that you just go to a no-code solution like Webflow. You're probably going to learn how to make a basic website, which is HTML, CSS, and JS. And then you're going to say, okay, you know what? Now I'm going to go and apply my knowledge and use Webflow. So regardless of whether you consider Webflow a no code or low code or whatever, the verdict or my verdict is the same. That Webflow lowers the barrier to entry for making websites. And that makes website creation more accessible for non-programmers. Now, why is something like this significant? Well, if we kind of go down a, a laundry list of, of things to consider here, we have by lowering the barrier to entry, you will naturally attract more people. By attracting more people, you bring more perspectives to the table. With more perspectives, 
innovation can more easily take place because you have a lot of people coming in and saying, hey, you know, I, I keep bumping up against this limitation and I have to keep going to a developer and they have to keep giving me scripts so I can embed that in my Webflow website, for example. Can I please have something that's a little bit more actually, you know, can I just have like a no code solution for this and then it'll expand and innovate and expand again and innovate and also with these additional perspectives, there obviously because there's more perspectives, there's more people. So what is it? There's more demand for the product. And with more demand, naturally comes more supply. So namely more no-code and low-code solutions will come out in order to fulfill not just website creation like Webflow, but app creation and other things like that. But with more solutions comes more competition. <laughs> so you can see the snowball effect here where you have more competition you will have even more innovation and money being invested because now the companies are effectively competing or fighting against each other. Now people are getting interested. There's more marketing. So the marketing will bring in more people, which will bring in more innovation and more perspectives. And you can see how this will just roll and roll and roll and roll. And that's probably why we're seeing those large percentage estimates in those quotes that I said earlier. Now, in the context um, of no and low code projects, this brews, like having this snowball effect, this brews a full on suite of different no and low code solutions that can actually probably do more and more of what we're using coding for traditionally. So you can do more and more of the things that you would, you would do, that you would do, say, like fully custom. So I'll give an example. Uh, one of the things I was interested in doing when we started when we started making our Udemy course, or Mike started making the Svelte course on Udemy, I just kind of started poking around on the Udemy uh, on the Udemy marketplace. And one of the things I've always kind of been interested in is obviously video games. And I'm not going to become some big game developer or anything. At least I don't see that in the cards at the moment. But I just was sort of interested. I'm just sort of like poking around, seeing how people write their descriptions and doing that type of thing. And I found a few courses that are like, hey, you know, do pixel art, uh, learn pixel art in, you know, a few hours, a few hours relatively, not literally like two hours, but, you know, learn how to use Unity to make RPG stuff, uh, RPG games, learn this, learn that. And then because I was on Udemy, I started getting marketing for, hey, come buy our asset kits, which are basically you know, come buy our RPG asset kits. It comes with a bunch of swords and a bunch of towns and a bunch of buildings and a bunch of this and a bunch of that. And I was realizing to, my, realizing to myself, I was like, man, this is kind of really becoming a no code slash low code thing. There's obviously video games out there that are fully coded from scratch or coded from the previous iteration of it, which was coded from scratch or whatever. But the point of the matter is, is that there's, there's this, this barrier to entry is really dropping. If we think about in the 90s when people had camcorders that was the that was one of the first low barriers to entry to get video cameras they were expensive ish but they weren't super expensive and you could take you know full on VHS or other tape videos then can then comes digital cameras yada yada so now YouTube is super accessible you can live stream right from your phone right making videos and uploading it now live streaming you see how it's like it, it's a continual effect now now we can have applications and websites being built by no code solutions and then now we're starting to get to the point where people can make their own video games or at least that's what it sounds like having not done a ton of research into this but it sounds like a lot of what a video game is could be coded either visually with a low code no code or with using previously existing assets now i'm not saying that's going to be the best game ever or anything like that but you can see how as technology itself ages 
the accessibility goes up. So now that web development is so hot, or at least as my Twitter would, uh, as my Twitter would suggest, because I see a lot of people becoming, uh, becoming web developers, getting really excited about programming and yada, yada. It, like, it will become more accessible as that goes. And then it will become just sort of the, like, almost like a side thing or not a side thing, just something in the background. If you, if someone says I'm watching a video online, you know, 90% of the time, or at least in my experience or more, they're watching it on YouTube. So it just be kind of becomes that thing. If someone says to you in the future in 10, 15 years, Hey, I'm making a website. You probably like it, or maybe not probably, but it, there's a high chance that you won't even really expect it to be programming. You won't expect them to be a web developer. You might think they're on Wix, Squarespace, Webflow, some other some other coding solution that's come out at the time, some other low coding. Maybe there maybe it'll be right from their phone. You know, it 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 really does become easy. Like a, another prime example is just investing. You know, investing is is difficult and I'm not going to get into investing advice cuz I don't really know what I'm doing. But the whole thing is is that look at what has happened with uh smartphone apps there's smartphone apps out there that round up your purchases and invest it quote unquote safely or whatever they claim. And like, like look at the barrier to entry for investing. You don't, you're no longer going to a broker or going to the floor or something crazy. You're not doing that anymore. It's becoming more and more accessible. And I think that no code, low code is, is the accessibility of making websites and making the web and making apps because apps have been around for a while and making things they're just becoming more accessible. And so it's the natural flow of things. So it's less to me personally, it's less controversial saying I like no code. I like low code. I like code. It's more just like, which one do you like? There's different camps and there's going to be combinations of each. Like I said, with the stripe and there's going to be no clear line as to what's low code, what's no code and what's code. Sometimes some stuff will be cut and dry. Some stuff won't. And I think that this is just sort of where the, where the, uh, where the market is going. Now, if we want to take that snowball effect to get back to the actual episode here, I want to take that snowball effect. So, you know, there's now more money in here. There's competition, there's innovation. There's, you know, there's lots of different no code solutions and low code solutions, and all that stuff. That's all kind of good news, right? Like it sounds like good news, or at least it does to me. And that all sounds great. More innovative, no code and low code solutions for those that need them. Right. And more coding jobs available to make these solutions. So there's an angle we have to look at is, as more of these solutions come to light and have actually get created, a lot of these jobs, a lot of these no coding, um, uh, usually software as a service, but a lot of these softwares, a lot of these services, they're going to need coding behind them to make the no code tools. And so there's going to be a, bu- a bunch of coding jobs available to make these actual solutions, right? And as any, as with anything in life, this can be a bit of a double edged sword and I'll kind of get into some of the cons here. Now, I will say I don't have any numbers to substantiate these arguments. These are just some arguments that I've heard on Twitter or Reddit or whatever throughout the years. And some these sort of make sense, like enough to consider and enough to mention here. But whether or not they hold a lot of water is sort of a question. So the first one I have here is with the barrier to entry being so low for website creation, the money that was once made by coders making business card websites or small business sites is arguably less because business owners can either do it themselves or they can find someone on the cheap. So this kind of, this does make sense in sort of, again, the natural flow of things. If we were to take the film example from before, if we were to take the old film example from before and we say, okay, you know, we're in the nineties and we take a bunch of pictures. 
it is not impossible, but it's pro- it's very improbable that you are going to be able to develop your own film from your disposable or professional, whatever grade of camera you have. You're going to have to go to a photo center somewhere inside of a department store or inside of a dedicated photo place, and you're going to have to get that developed. So at the end of the day, in order to take pictures back in the day, you had to buy a camera, disposable or otherwise, and then assuming it wasn't included, buy a roll of film, which had, I want to say 20 photos on there. It might be less. It might be more. I don't know. 20 photos, 30, it doesn't matter. You buy a limited run of film, a little canister. You put that inside of your, you put that inside of your, of your uh, camera. You take your pictures, which by the way, you can't preview. <laughs> you can't preview to see if they came out until you get them developed. Then you need to come back from your vacation or from your family event or whatever you were taking pictures at. Go to the store, take the film there. They develop it in a couple of days, or I think the big thing I remember at the late in the later nineties was, you know, 20 minute film development or whatever. So then you would walk around the department store, which of course, which of course, uh, encourages spending money in the department store because you're walking around and shopping. And then you get your, you know, your, your 20 minute or your one hour or whatever film back. And now you're looking through your photos and half of them are crap because the lighting was bad and you couldn't tell because you couldn't see the thing. Like, like not joking, like look at how much money was invested there and look how much money was, you know, the barrier to entry for, for film was like, it was a fairly expensive thing. Like it wasn't as expensive. It wasn't like super, super expensive where no one had cameras. Most people did have cameras, but like you had to drive there. You have to go back. You have to have the film, yada, yada. Now it's just like pull out your phone, which you need for other things anyway. And you click a button and then now you can cloud those photos and then that's it. And you can still get them printed, right? You can still get them printed, which are very, which is very, very cheap now. Uh, probably cheaper than film. I was too young in the nineties to know the prices of getting film developed. But the point of the matter is, is that getting it, there's no development. There's literally, you go on your phone, you take a look and click and that's it. So again, the barrier to entry is lower. And so everyone, or not everyone, but more people can now take really good pictures. And so I would say that selling prints nowadays, now that the barrier to taking photos, especially ones with a preview right on a high def screen on your phone and, and with editors and filters and everything else that we have now, the barrier to making good photos is, is less. And so selling photo prints might be more difficult, but again, this is one of those things where this is the natural beginning of things. It's the natural progression of the industry where it's just becoming more accessible And so this point makes sense, but it kind of, it kind of is expected to an extent. I don't know. Let me know in some sort of comment section or on social media, if you agree with that. The next argument here, um, some might argue that the amount of coders that these no and low code solutions, uh, the jobs that they create is imbalanced, meaning that the amount of coders, uh, being undercut by no and low code solutions is far greater than those finding jobs coding elsewhere. Now you could chalk this up to uh, efficiency. So for example, if you are going to make 10 times less money than you would a number of years ago, making a business card site. So let's just say you were going to make $10 per business card site, and now you're going to make a dollar. Well, if you yourself use a no code or low code solution, you switch from coding to no or low code, you might be able to put the same amount of time that you would do making one of those into making 10 
and then you're making still your $10. Now, there's obviously the argument of, well, are you going to be able to find those amount of customers with more people coming into the space? And is it watering it down and yada, yada? I mean, maybe. But the thing is, is we still hold YouTube as a potential career. People still make content. Content creation is still really huge. But if we just kind of zoom in on YouTube, YouTube back in the day was arguably, from what I've heard from YouTubers, is was like easier to get into because there's obviously less influencers. But there was still a lot of just stuff being uploaded, family videos or just like cool things where someone took a cool like whale video while whale watching on vacation or whatever. So stuff that isn't really like, say, influencer material. They don't have like a, a studio. They don't have a set. They don't have any of that. And so and so like getting into YouTube and becoming sort of big, big ish was like a lower barrier to entry or was a high was like a, it was it was easier back then. Now it's harder but because the technology makes it easier. So there's like this weird double-edged sword effect where it's easier to make really high class videos. You can even shoot 4K with a phone. So you can make 4K content from a phone without a huge investment. But now that so many people can do that, now getting into YouTube is harder. Okay. So it's harder to make money, just like it would be here. If the amount that you charged uh, per, per like business card website drops by a factor of 10, that really sucks. However, you'd probably still consider it, you could still consider at least the industry a potential income source. There's still new YouTubers coming up, right? No one says, oh, you know, getting into YouTube is impossible and I'm not going to do that anymore. It's not impossible. There's new YouTubers that come out every day. There's new influencers that come out every day. There's different niches, different this, different that. And so certainly there's sort of like, say a gold rush age where everything is like, you know, you're making money like crazy because no one knows what's going on, but it's starting to become popular. Like when websites where everyone, all the businesses wanted websites right away, but no one really knew how to make, make them. There was no, no code, no low code solutions. So everyone's coming to developers to make websites. You could argue the same thing with the whole YouTube thing where now it's easy to make pretty decent, like easy relatively to make decent YouTube content, but you have to make almost like great YouTube content or very targeted YouTube content to get up there. But we don't take YouTube as a career off the table, just like how we don't take web development off the table, just because, uh, anyone or virtually anyone can make their own little business card site. And so again, it's kind of a growing pain. It's kind of something where, you know, it sucks if you really only want to make business card websites, but like any business, you kind of have to change and grow and, and move with the market. And that's kind of exactly what's happened here. And the last argument I have here is no code and low code solutions are not very performant and therefore are making software bulky and difficult to create and troubleshoot, let alone perform well. That is probably correct. Uh, now, it really does depend on what low code, what no code solution you are using because generally, okay, let me, let me explain this. So when you make a, a tech very general, because it's general, it has to do a whole bunch of things. And because it has to do a whole bunch of things, it does everything good. It doesn't do it perfect. It doesn't do it well. It does it okay. So let's just say okay and well. So okay, so let's take a, a prime example is a processor in a computer, a modern day computer. A processor, in a, a process, a pro, don't, know what, don't know what word that was. A processor in a modern day computer is very, it's a general computing device, right? So it's good or it's okay at doing everything but it's not great that those are better terms. It's not great at doing a thing. So if you think about your computer, 
whether you have a Mac, a PC, Linux, I don't care. That thing can do word processing. That thing can do messaging. It can do web browsing. It can tell the time. It can record a podcast like I'm doing right now. It can edit video. It can have USB plugged into it. It can be, it can be a server. It can be a server and a client at the same time. It can do a whole bunch of different things, right? It can do a whole bunch of stuff, but it's not amazing at one thing. That's where you start getting into like specific things. So for example, if you get super, 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 super into audio, you become an audiophile is what people call them. People that are super into audio quality. If you are really into audio, you start noticing these people, like the people that become audiophiles, you start noticing these people buy different things. They're not just using their Mac. They're not just using their Mac's headphone jack, if that exists now. I don't know anything about Macs. Um... They're not using just USB audio. They're not do using just just a headphone jack with speakers. They're not using just desktop speakers. They're not using just a gaming headset. They're using external amplifiers and compressors and blah 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 to record stuff. Or they're listening. They're listening on these like super high class, you know, crazy headphones that are like super expensive and like I wouldn't even be able to explain them. Right? It becomes that you start buying equipment that's very good. At one thing. So so you're buying that set of audio equipment to listen to music. You're not buying that set of audio equipment to listen to video games. You're not buying that set of audio equipment necessarily to record stuff. You're buying it to listen to audio. A very, very, very high class set of headphones may have no microphone at all or have a very cheap microphone. Just, just for convenience. But if you think about it, even very cheap earbuds, which are wired, or even the cheapest Bluetooth headphones generally have, generally will have a microphone. This is so that it's more of a general computing device. You can take calls. You cannot take calls on it. Uh, you can just listen. You can, you know, do, you can do voice commands. Like it's a very general device. Okay. Now, Mike and I in the past, Okay, and I've mentioned we mentioned this several times. In school, we used to use, uh, or we used to do uh, embedded systems. Now, what's an embedded system? It's very similar to this very niche particular device. An embedded system is extremely fast and extremely efficient because they're close to what's called the metal, literally like the silicon, the like the the board itself, the circuit board. They are not general systems. So for the most part, they can do one thing very, very, very well, like the headphones, right? So let's take a car alarm system. Now, maybe modern cars are more advanced than this, but in general, a car alarm system will do a couple of checks. It will check if the doors are open and if the doors are locked. And if a door is open while the doors are supposed to be locked, it will sound an alarm. And that is all that does. So it's just a, a chip on a board somewhere, some circuitry to complement it, and it just keeps checking, 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 checking. Now sound alarm. That's all it does. It does it very well. It does it very fast. There's no loading. Like on Windows, there's no loading. There's no messing around. And it's just like that, that audio file's headphones. The headphones have a certain interface, whatever, yada, yada, and it plays music very, very well. Chances are the microphone in it is not there or it's garbage because it's it's made for that one specific purpose. So if we bring this back, okay, because I know it sounds like we're on a tangent, but we're not. If we bring this back to no and low code solutions being not very performant, no and low code solutions are general technologies. They are designed such that if I sign up for an app making no code solution, 
I am making an app of a certain type or of a of an uncertain type, excuse me, meaning that I'm going in and maybe I'm making a game. Maybe I'm making a calculator app, a photo manager, a photo editor. Is it a video editor? Like there's seriously a whole bunch of, of different applications. So it's a general technology. So as a result, the technology itself probably has more lines of code. It's probably a little more messy because it's not just a video editor and really good at video editing. It's not quite there. So with that being said, with bring it back to web development, you could argue that if you really want things to be super performant, why are we not all using vanilla HTML, CSS, and JS instead of plugins upon plugins upon plugins, which are on frameworks, which are on this and that, et cetera, right? Think about that is it realistically the best performance that you're going to get is trying to cut out a little bit of JS and, and offloading that to CSS sometimes. Sometimes you want JS and you don't want Svelte or you don't want jQuery or you don't want like, you know what I mean? There's, there's way, there's different solutions for every problem and we will often choose the easiest solution for us, but it's not necessarily the most performant solution. And so, whereas I agree that no code and low code solutions are potentially not very performant or more than likely not as performant as they could be if they were dedicated the fact of the matter is, is that we all use things that are not as performant as they could be. You, we use things that we use different plugins and different, um, like we use, we use different, um, development, development environments that require compiling. Whereas if you just use HTML, CSS and JS, there's no compiling. You just double click on the index file and you're off to the races. So realistically, it's like, well, which one's not very performant? So there's, there's an argument to be had here, absolutely, and you don't want to have your no and low code solutions, especially the outputs. If someone's making an app in a no code, in a no code uh, system or solution or whatever, you don't want to have that app be super, you know, bad. But it also comes down to a little bit of a secondary argument. If your app is running 50% worse than it should, but, okay, it still runs perfectly, like in terms of, a user is not going to notice this. It still runs perfectly even on old computer systems. Does performance matter? So it comes down to this argument where I think this is actually an area of contention where some people will say, make it as, as performant and as efficient and as easy and as whatever on the system that you can so that when we build on top of it, which will inevitably happen with innovation, we don't have to go back. But there's all, but there's all, there's also the school of thought of, just rush it out, get it done. If it works, it works. If we have to refactor it in the future, we have to refactor it in the future. And this is how we push forward. We don't want to waste time making things super, super efficient and super, super well run. We'll come back to it later. And sometimes people don't even come back to it because computer systems get more powerful and more powerful and more powerful and more powerful. We can see that if you're into gaming, we could see that with the last generation of consoles, Xbox One and PS4, they were having trouble at the end. This is not a joke. They were having trouble running menus sometimes because what the game developers were doing was, well, menus are getting old and, you know, they're kind of like, let's do some animations in the background. Let's have characters walking around and have a town back there, or like whatever, and have these 3D models spinning and stuff like this. And so what are they doing? They're not making the menu as performant as it could. They're making it flashy. But because maybe the assets aren't as compressed or the consoles can't keep up, the menu, the thing that you would assume would never be laggy, the menu is more laggy than the gameplay, right? It's one of those things where it's like, let's push the menus 
uh, forward. Let's make the menus look nicer. Let's make a next generation of menus. And then the next generation of consoles come out, the series, the series Xbox series and the PS5 come out. And now those menus can run perfectly because of the SSD and the additional power. So it's like, do they need to fix it now? Like as a consumer, I don't, I wouldn't even know if they fixed it because you know, let's say it's, it's, it's running, it's running 50% worse than it was, but the, the, this console is 200% better. So I would never notice it and they probably don't care. So it, it, it's kind it's, it's that, it's that argument now, right? It's that argument where like over time, no code and low code solutions, the actual platforms themselves will be refactored and fixed up as needed. And I will say, I would say that I agree with this argument is that they're not as performant as they could be. However, if we web developers and we just want to code everything, there's an argument to be had of just saying we should just do everything in vanilla. We shouldn't be using plugins, especially not plugins that we don't know how they work fully, because what if that's adding a loop for some reason and we don't know why? Why are we using WordPress? Do we know every single line and a line of code in WordPress? That's technically saving development time, but it's making it less performant if there's some little bug in there or something, right? It's, it's one of those things where we really, where we need to consider you know, the, the difference between, uh, performance or like performance, like that's like really, really good and performance. That's just good enough because at the end of the day, there's an argument to be had among, uh, developers and among, you know, people that pay attention to tech, but for a consumer and we're all consumers as well, you're not going to really notice it. You know, we don't know the ins and outs unless we work there of like the TD Canada trust banking app. We don't know the ins and outs of that, how that app works. Is that app running 130 times worse than it should? I have no idea. All I know is that I can check my balance and send money around and do all the regular bank stuff. I have no idea if that app is running 130 times worse than it is. And I and I would have no reason to complain until there's a problem where sending money takes 90 hours or something or the phone keeps crashing and stuff like that. So if the if the no-code and low-code solution is causing performing performance problems, fine. If it's not, there's an argument to be had there. I personally like things to be really performant and run really well, but I have to take into consideration, and I do this even on my own projects, the fact that there are time limits, there's deadlines, and there's there's certainly things that we can't control as developers. There's certainly things where it's like, well, I can shave off one millisecond. Let's delay the whole website by two days. Like, we're not going to do that, right? We can always refactor later, and so that's where this kind of argument comes in. Well, that is actually all I have for this episode. Uh, I hope that I wasn't too ranty. This is my first solo episode. I think this might be my first solo podcast ever. My probably is because uh, I'm in another podcast as well. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, I know it's the new year and uh, Mike will hopefully be back for the next episode. And uh, like I said, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I tried to talk a lot because I'm the only person talking and you don't want to hear like long pauses for like 30 seconds at a time. So I hope it was okay. And now if it wasn't, or if you have any feedback, please, please hit us up on uh, social media and let, let us know if you liked this episode, if you disliked it, if you think I should do something differently, if I need to do a solo episode in the future, cause it's my first, so it's not going to be as performant as it should. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> no more tying things into the episode with weird puns, I guess that would have been, but anyway, um, we're going to run the old conclusion now. So thank you to our 
$3 tier patrons. And remember that we are on that Patreon. That's patreon.com slash HTML, the things. And our $3 tier patrons are Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital via blueblackdigital.com, Chris from Selfmade Web Designer via selfmadewebdesigner.com, Tim from The Web Hacker via thewebhacker.com, DL Ford from dlford.io, Pim Hashdash from Nine Block Media on nineblockmedia.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com, Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca, Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se, and Jeff from Twitter via, and this is a new, newer Twitter handle here, via at the Jeff McHale. Different, and there are uh, underscores between the words there. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And this outro will sign just me off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.